are kicking off this giant-sized edition of Monster Kid Radio with the song Black Lagoon. It is from the band Invisible Dracula, and you're not going to be able to find it anywhere else because right now, what you're listening to, episode 200 of Monster Kid Radio, this is the debut of the song Black Lagoon. Now, if you like Invisible Dracula, go to invisibledracula.bandcamp.com and pick up in the Invisible EP. There's some great music on there, like the music we played last time on Monster Kid Radio, but this song... You're going to hear it in its entirety at the end of this episode. Welcome to Monster Kid Radio, episode 200. I am your host, writer-producer Derek M. Cook, and I'm super excited. I mean, 200 episodes of Monster Kid Radio. This could not have happened if it wasn't for you guys and gals listening to, supporting, talking about, and just being part of of the show. So thank you to each and every one of you who's ever downloaded the podcast. I could not, well, okay, I probably would do this without you, but I couldn't have the success that I have if it wasn't for the listeners. So thank you so much. Also to celebrate episode 200, we have some original artwork. Go check out the episode cover art. Normally I take a movie poster and I put the words Monster Kid Radio in the place of the movie title. Well, this time we have some original artwork from artist Shelby Denham. Check it out. No, go ahead. I'll give you a second. Go look at it. Or you know what? Go to monsterkidradio.net. You're going to see it right there as well. Shelby's the artist who did that awesome Gilman listening to a podcast piece of artwork. And I love it. So Shelby, thank you. Listeners, go check her out at sheepy-doodle.tumblr.com. I'll make sure there's a link to her website in the show notes. This is a giant-sized episode because we did something that we have never done here on the podcast before. This is a roundtable about my favorite topic... Creature from the Black Lagoon. That's right. Creature from the Black Lagoon is my favorite film. Long-time listeners know this. Listeners of episode 199 know this because I said it there. I can't stop talking about, thinking about, dreaming about, wanting to watch Creature from the Black Lagoon... It is my favorite film for so many different reasons. We've talked about it on Monster Kid Radio in the past. We've talked about it on Creature Cast Among Us. And we're going to talk about it here on episode 200 with special guests. All returning to Monster Kid Radio, Tracy Morris, Stephen D. Sullivan, and Chris McMillan. It was a good roundtable discussion. It went a little longer than originally planned. So big thanks to Tracy, Steve, and Chris for sticking around as long as you did and giving me your time to talk about Creature. Now, the conversation... It was pretty structured. I had some ideas about what I wanted to talk about. Specifically, we're going to talk about... Well, I'll tell you now. Talk about the remake. The potential remake. The universal push to bring their classic monsters to a contemporary audience. But, trust me. It's not the only thing we talk about. And even though we're talking about remaking a classic film that does not need to be remade, in my opinion... It's still a pretty good conversation. I had a really good time recording the roundtable and a doubly good time editing the roundtable. So I hope everybody enjoys listening to the roundtable. You know what? There is a lot to get to. Like I said, this is an extra-sized edition of Monster Kid Radio. I did not want to cut this roundtable up and play it over the course of two episodes the way I normally do. I wanted to do it all at once. So buckle in. Make sure you have your scuba gear. We're going to dive into that roundtable pretty much right after I play this trailer.
couldn't explain it, but there it was, alive, in the deep, deep waters of the Amazon, a throwback to a creature that had existed a hundred million years ago, immensely strong and destructive. A woman's beauty, the bait that brought it out of its lair. See underwater thrills never photographed before. See titanic underwater battles never dreamed of before, in this most terrifying of the science fiction adventures. I thought episode 200 would be a good show to do something special, something that I've been wanting to do on Monster Kid Radio in quite some time, and that's doing a roundtable discussion, and I brought three previous guests from Monster Kid Radio to the table to talk about a topic that's near and dear to my heart. First, we have Tracy Morris, one of the co-hosts of the Disney Indiana podcast over at DisneyIndiana.com, but she's no princess. Today, she's a monster kid. Tracy, how's it going? Going well. Thanks for inviting me on the show again. In addition to Tracy, we are joined by the man who keeps his finger on the bloody pulse of all things horror in the Pacific Northwest over at ShadowOverPortland.com, Chris McMillan. Hi, how's it going? And, um, yeah. <laughs> and finally, the man behind books that you should already own, and if you don't, go out and order Daikaiju Attack and White Zombie, Stephen D. Sullivan. How are you, sir? Hey, I'm doing pretty well. This is a regular monster kid rally on the rondo award-winning monster kid radio yes congratulations (laughs) huge congrats go on (laughs) i mean yes no thank you thank you (laughs) Uh, seriously derek very well done and uh congratulations also on reaching episode 200 yes I know a lot of our Monster Kid friends also had shows and stuff in the running, and they were all very worthy, but I'm really, really happy that you won this year. I think it's really well-deserved. Well, thanks, guys. And I said this on a previous episode. I said this on Facebook, and I'm probably going to be saying this for quite some time. That wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for people like you guys and gals. It wouldn't happen if I didn't have listeners backing me up, people who I consider the Monster Kid Radio Brain Trust helping me out. I just appreciate everybody's support. So thank you for helping me get to this point. Very welcome. So, Creature from the Black Lagoon. (laughs) (laughs) When I launched Monster Kid Radio 200 episodes ago, the first episode was a recording that Chris and I did at a local convention in which we sat in front of a room full of people and talked about our top three favorite monster movies. And not surprisingly, he and I had the same number one pick, and that was Creature. Yep. I mean, still is. Hasn't changed. Not surprisingly. Was it last year, Tracy, that you and Scott did the Marathon Universal Monster Show thing? No, it was 2013, I think. Okay, that's right. So you and Scott went to the art craft and watched a whole slew of Universal Monster movies. And you saw a creature there for the first time on the big screen. Yes. And we talked about that here on the show. But Steve, we've never had you on the show to talk about creature. This is one of your favorites, too, right? Oh, God, yes. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking as I was... uh driving back to do the show today that the creature and godzilla are probably my two favorite monsters wow and they both date back probably to the uh early 1960s and the aurora model kits before oh, i yeah. even seen the movies <laughs> so and i love the creature i've seen it many many times and i've seen it uh, in 3d on the big screen a number of times and it, 
not in 3D on the big screen a number of times because I'm one of those people that was lucky enough to grow up in the the Revival House era where you could go and in Milwaukee there was a the Oriental Theater played a different double or triple feature of classic movies every day of the week and it was an amazing thing and that when we had a theater like that in uh, Cambridge and Boston area where I grew up too so I got to see a lot of these shows on the big screen and creatures probably one of the ones I've seen the most it's I can't resist going to see it yeah I keep trying to get uh, people rallied behind it because they have the uh, this is your theater vote for the Hollywood theater and they keep saying they can bring creature in 3d on the big screen and it always loses I don't know why disappointed by that every month you've tried to do that <laughs> I, I am too I, there, there, I have to figure out a way I, it's going to happen maybe not this year but it's going to happen I will make it happen you got to stuff the ballot box. <laughs> yeah, I know. I got to find the ballot box and just start cramming them in. <laughs> well, um, I feel bad because, you know, since I can't attend, I've not been voting in those things. So maybe I should, even though I'm, you know, half the country away, maybe I should be voting too. It's like, yeah, bring it here. I'll fly out. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. There, there is the catch too that they have to sell a certain amount of tickets for the winning movie. Mm. You know, right. the, you just don't get to vote, and that one goes in. You have, they have to have like I think a hundred advanced ticket sales. So, right. you know, if the votes aren't there, I don't know. I would love to see it on the big screen in 3D once again. I, it's been too long. It's been a while since it's shown up here, hasn't it? In the Portland area, I don't think we've had it for a while. Yeah, I think it's been at least six years, maybe. I don't know. I, I think the Academy showed it once, and oh, it was at the drive-in, right. but. Yeah, we, we need to get it back here on the big screen. Or we need to start a Kickstarter and just build our own theater and show nothing but Creature. <laughs> and Godzilla's we can get Steve out. Oh, there yeah, you go. Definitely. <laughs> definitely for both of those, I would come out. You know, the uh, confession here is the one way I haven't seen the Creature is on the big screen in the original polarized version with the correct aspect ratio, uh-huh. which is I've always seen just the anaglyph red-blue. And it's a wonderful film that way if the if the anaglyph is transferred right and stuff. I'd love to see it with the, the polarized glasses in widescreen on a We've, on a big screen would just be amazing. The Hollywood has shown it twice that way with the polarized version and uh, it is really good. Yeah. Should we mention at this point that Creature from the Black Lagoon is probably the best three D movie ever made? Wow, that's a bold claim. You know what? Why don't we kick this off with that? What? What? <laughs> we know where Steve stands. Yeah. I would say definitely the best of the era. Yes, sure. I would go with that. Definitely. Especially the underwater photography. I am blown away every time I see this film, flat or 3D. <laughs> yes. The underwater photography, the 3D on that. When I saw it at the drive-in and they were doing it at 3D, and to see the underwater photography on that large drive-in screen... Wow. Yeah. The scene I love, I mean, the scene that really sets it up, the 3D up so well is, is where they find the, uh, fossilized claw. Yeah. And the way the Mm -hmm. camera pans onto that, it's, it's almost like it's swooping towards you. It looks so nice on 3D. Yeah. And normally with these 3D movies, they always have something that's going to lunge at the camera for you. But for that, the camera's actually doing the lunging and it's, it's a slightly different effect and it's so good. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it's reaching out into the audience. It's just an amazing thing. You know, you said it's the best of its era, but I think it compares favorably even to Avatar, which I 
for me is the best 3D movie of the modern era, I, I think, easily. Oh, I agree with you on that. That, and, that was why it's like, hmm, it's a toss-up. The creature's a better story. But Avatar's got a whole lot more, you know, a whole lot more special effects with the computer graphics and all behind it. So, yeah. right. Well, and and one of the things they have in common is that they were both designed to be 3D movies. It wasn't like a lot of the three. I don't even go to see a lot of the 3D movies nowadays because they're not actually being shot for 3D. They're retrofitting them. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah about the only. 3D movies we go to are like the animated ones or computer animated because you know those are developed, like I said, from the beginning as 3D. Right, exactly. Exactly. Most of the live action 3D movies I've seen lately have been, I didn't think were worth seeing in 3D. They weren't worth the extra five bucks to get Mm -hmm. the glasses. But Creature totally is. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yes. I'd pay more than five bucks to see it in 3D. What are you talking about? Yeah. Unfortunately, I've only seen it once in 3D, but uh, yeah, I would jump at the chance to see it again. You know, you mentioned the underwater scenes. You know, I grew up watching Jacques Cousteau specials on TV, and it just blows my mind to realize that this came out. I was doing a little bit of research, but this film came out a good decade before Jacques Cousteau developed the underwater cameras he used in you know his filming. Mm-hmm. It's very early in terms of that, and it's the level of sophistication that it shows, and the fact that these aren't just, I mean, Jacques Cousteau had great state-of-the-art films, but this is a 3D camera yeah. underwater yeah. right? doing all this stuff back at the start of 3D. I mean, we're not talking like they had years to develop this or anything. This is one of the early, in some sense, it's one of the early pictures in 3D, and it remains one of the best. And maybe that's why. A lot of times when you're working on something, if you have to be the pioneer, you end up pushing things further than maybe the people that come later do. Because you don't know what you can't do. Exactly. Exactly. And I don't think anyone said to Rico Browning, it's impossible what you're doing. (laughs) So he just went out and he did it. Mm -hmm. Without him swimming, uh, the movie wouldn't be anywhere near as good. His performance as the creature underwater is amazing. Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. And Tracy and I were talking about this a little bit last night off mic uh, about him being a suit actor, a monster actor, compared to, say, the Karloffs and the, the Cheneys from the 30s and the 40s. His performance is right up there when it comes to being a monster actor in one of these movies. I mean, not only did he have to act through the mask, he had to act underwater, and he had to act holding his breath. Yep. And you still know what the creature is thinking and how he's reacting and and it all reads so well on the screen every time i watch it i have a hard time believing it's a guy in a costume that's what i think is one of the great successes of it it's like i look at the creature and i don't see rico browning or ben chapman i see the monster in a way that is even greater than, than, say, you know, Lon Chaney under the Wolfman makeup. It's really hard for me to, even though I've seen pictures, I have a signed picture of it on my wall with the, the head off of him and him in the suit, I still find it hard to believe that there's, there's a guy under all that because it looks so real and so natural in the aquatic environment. It's really amazing. Yeah, and the way he swam, I mean, swimming upside down underwater, I mean, that would be difficult without a suit. You know, that would be hard to do without a suit, let alone 
encased in the creature outfit. I mean, but his performance allowed you to believe that this was an aquatic being, you know, yes. that, that this was something that was at home in the water because he swam so effortlessly and it just works so well, just so well. I found a good quote from Ginger Stanley Hollowell, who was Adam's stunt swimmer, mm-hmm. talking about filming this sequence. And she said, we just kind of dreamed it up. Water would go into Riku's eye hole, so the only way he could see me was to turn upside down. (laughs) And she goes on, during the whole sequence, he was supposed to be swimming underneath me, and I wasn't supposed to know he was there. Every now and then, I'd feel the scaly hand come up and skim my leg or bottom, and I'd say, oh, Riku must be there. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Yeah, it's amazing. I'm old enough and been watching this film long enough that I actually learned to swim watching him and learned to swim underwater. And, you know, I'm not <laughs> nearly as grateful, graceful as he is. But when I was learning to swim and teaching myself to swim, he was my goal. I wanted to be able to swim underwater and do the little spirals he did and all that kind of stuff. Because how cool is it? It's just an amazing, whether it was clearing the eye holes or whatever, he looked like he belonged underwater. You could totally buy that he was an underwater creature that this was his environment, and we and Julie Adams and all the others were just intruders into this world where, where he lived. His work is fantastic. He's an incredibly humble guy, too. If you ever have a chance to meet him at a convention, I mean, he'll talk about this stuff. But it's like, yeah, it's what we did. Like Tracy was saying, I think that idea that nobody told him what he couldn't do still kind of sticks with him. He's just like, yeah, yeah you know, this is what we did, and this is what we had to do, and so we did it. And it's just right. amazing. I mean, he really brought that character to life. Now, I don't think we should totally discount what Ben Chapman brought to the role. Oh, no. Because above ground, or above the water, I suppose, on ground, on land, the creature does feel like a slightly different being because he's out of his environment. He's clunky. He's clumsy. But he's still, you know, a monster and a guy doing what he does best. I mean, I think Ben Chapman did a lot to bring that character to life, too. But yeah, I hear what you guys are saying, yeah. Totally. As a kid, I never noticed there was any difference between the two. I had no idea. Yeah, I knew it was a suit, even though it looked very real. But I had no idea that there were different people performing it. And that's a tribute to both of those men, I think, that they did so well to integrate the suit and to make it feel like it was a a consistent performance, both above and below the water. You know, Chapman's not as graceful in the suit. But that makes total sense because he's not, you know, the the creature doesn't come out of the water very often. I pulled uh, the movie out last night to watch it just, you know, to get myself ready for this show. Like, I really need an excuse to watch the creature (laughs) from the Black Lagoon. Yeah, me too. (laughs) But, but, you know, and I know that it's two different um, actors. And I know that there's, you know, an extra scale in the chest because Ben Chapman was a wider person than uh, Rico Browning. But... Sometimes I'll say, okay, I'm going to look for this now. I still just, I forget to look. I'm so wrapped up in the movie. I'm so wrapped up in the performance that it's just like, "Eh, whatever. (laughs) I'll pause it and look later. (laughs) Right, yeah. It's finding that extra set of scales because Ben is taller. It's like, I I never think of it either. It's just like, (laughs) oh, look, this creature's wandering around. Look, what a cool costume. That's a tribute to the story that you're, even though you know, You've seen it so many times, you know there's these things you want to look for, but like you said, you, you get wrapped up in what's going on, and it, it doesn't matter. It, no, it just doesn't. Going back to the camera work, some of that is the, the underwater camera work being just so wonderful. And oh, yeah. Really, 
state of the art, I'm sure, for the time. It's just, and I mentioned Rico because I we all know that he was kind of the underwater expert on the whole shoots in addition to playing the creature. So he did work with the underwater photography rigs and, and help them set up this whole thing. And it's just, it's mind boggling to me that they could do all this given the kind of resources they had at the time and how big cameras were at the time. It's amazing to see the underwater scenes are still, they're just gorgeous and seeing them in 3d, if you can, it's, you know, it's black and white, but other than that, it's like being there. And it's kind of funny. You mentioned how large the cameras must have been. We see in the film that they bring the camera down, and I, that's just a still camera right. Right. that they bring mm-hmm. in. And it's, what, a good two feet wide and a foot either, the other two dimensions. And it's right. ungainly. It's, it's like the size of a backpack, a fully loaded backpack. It's really huge. Well, I was going to say, you think about it, those, that was actually, you know, they had to house a 3D camera, which was basically two cameras. Mm-hmm. And, and the film, film underwater. Reels. Yeah, and the film reels and everything. And, and get that underwater. And it's not even stationary all the time. The camera's still moving. Yep. You know, it's not like they just dropped it on a tripod and said, okay, swim by. They had the camera moving and everything. Really amazing work for the time. It's beautiful. Right. It's, it's breathtaking, no pun intended. It's beautiful. It's gorgeous work. Huh, which makes me worry about the prospect of a remake. <laughs> Oh, are we going there already? Well, you know, about a month ago, there was some noise online about somebody potentially being cast in the remake. They've been talking about remaking this movie for years. I mean, at one point, Brett, is it Breck Eisner? Michael Eisner's son was going to direct it. Before that, they were talking about somebody else doing it. This thing... They were talking about remaking it in the early 1980s. Yeah, they've been talking about it for quite some time. Yeah. And because Universal's got their big initiative, their big Universal Unite, as I'm calling it, push, <laughs> which I'm surprised they never really jumped on, unless they're afraid that they'd have to pay me royalties. But um, <laughs> with, with the don't top, worry, they're a big corporation, Derek. They'd steal it from you and never pay you a dime. That's true, and you know they what? got the lawyers. Yeah, yeah that's fine. Uh-huh. Whatever. I don't really need to be associated with the project. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, uh, is this a movie that should be remade? I think I know the answer, but let's let's go around the table here. No. <laughs> <laughs> nah. <laughs> I'm really on the fence on okay. this. I've spoken before when we talked about the films when we did the, uh, the Monster Film Festival. Kay's character seems to change once they get into the lagoon. Up to that point... She is treated like an equal. You know, she holds her own against the guys. When she said she's coming along on the expedition, nobody blinks an eye. Yep. But mm-hmm. once they get to the lagoon, once they realize that this there's something here and it can kill a person, she loses any sense of agency. She becomes the damsel in distress. And I yep. find that I per, I find that a little frustrating. I agree. I agree with you, which is kind of why the casting news, you know, if there's one good thing about the remake that's supposedly coming, um, the person they're casting is not, they're not going to get, should we just say who it was on the internet? Yeah. Yeah. Scarlett Johansson, they're not going to get her if they're going to turn her into a damsel in distress. I don't see that happening now. And no, 
listeners, this isn't confirmed. This was all just a rumor that we had heard, and a lot of people ran with the story. We don't know if Scarlett Johansson really was cast. So don't don't put me on Wikipedia as somebody. (laughs) Well, the news wasn't that she was cast. It was that the uh, studio is trying to cast her. It's looking Mm -hmm. at casting her. So even if it's true, because everybody knows everything on the Internet is true, um, (laughs) even if it is true, she isn't cast. They're just trying to cast her. Right. Now, she can do vulnerable. If you've seen Lucy, which I don't terribly recommend, but her performance, especially near the beginning, she plays vulnerable. She plays a woman in a bad situation well, but she is best known for being a superhero. Yeah. Black Widow. Mm -hmm. She even has a a very vulnerable scene in the new Avengers movies movie that I don't know you guys have seen yet, but we saw it last night. Mm -hmm. There is a a set of scenes there where she's very vulnerable in that. She's an actress of great range, and I think she's, if they're going to do this bad thing, (laughs) (laughs) I think she would be a very good choice, potentially, to play the K character. And I, I totally agree with you that K loses agency as the film goes on. I think the trouble is that it's 1954, right? right? And people just weren't thinking about losing agency or, you know, moving the the female character from the really competent one to the one that's being rescued. And when I was running it late last night and I actually only watched about half the film, but I was impressed with how much of a a liberated character she K Julie Adams is right up to the point where the net is shredded after she goes for the swim with the creature and the net is shredded even to the point where she's out there swimming it's like they're all come back come back you're too far out and she's like hey it's fine i'm doing okay and then sometime after that she kind of slips into the damsel in distress routine which is disappointing but you have to remember this is 1954 and I'm not sure that anyone ever sat down at the screenwriter conference and said, you know, you've got this strong woman character at the beginning, and by the end, she's just being carried off by the monster. Do you think there's a disconnect there? I'm sure it didn't occur to them. At the same time, you have to give them some credit for trying to make her, it's pre-feminism, but trying to make her a competent feminist character in the man's world. And even the, the conflict between the two heroes It's like they both know that she's really good at what she does, but one of them is kind of willing to let her go with it. The other one wants to marry her and kind of put her into the standard 1950s housewife role. So there's kind of an interesting little conflict there that, you know, if you have to pick on something in the movie, it doesn't get resolved in a way that's fully satisfying for that character. But, again, it's the 1950s. You have to give the screenwriter credit for putting a woman in the workplace in a position of of competence and authority, which you don't see that much in in movies of the time, you know, even mainstream movies, uh, never mind genre movies and monster movies. I mean, when I think of super competent women characters in monster movies from around that era, I think of the Nikki character from The Thing from Another World. Oh, best uh, example you could come up with on that. Yeah, she's just awesome. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then I think of the the Pat character, the female scientist from Them, who is also, those two characters are competent all the way through the movie. And even when things get tough, they never degenerate into 
into just a, a you know a screaming f- a future housewife. So, well, in that case, I'd have to go with uh, Beverly Garland's character, and it conquered the world. Oh, that's a great example too. Mm. Yeah, she's a really good. That's kind of out of the studio system in some ways. So, it, it's, true. That's probably a little uh, an easier sell. <laughs> for for Corman and company doing that, it's like they were kind of doing what they wanted, whereas the the larger mass produced films tended to kind of you know you'd have the woman scientist say giving a speech and say it came from beneath the sea, which I love talking about how great women are, and then in the next cut she's screaming her head off because the monster's there, right? Mm-hmm. Like, oh, come on, guys, you almost had it. <laughs> You know, as much as we love these movies, and this is something, I think Tracy and I maybe even talked about this during Women in Horror Month, as much as we love these movies, unfortunately, you do run across some uh, not as fully developed female characters in these films. And so she mentions Beverly Garland uh, in that film. She's fantastic in that, and if it wasn't for her, the movie would have ended a lot differently. And unfortunately, the K character in Creature... Once they get out there, you mentioned the net shredding. I feel like it's almost before that. I, I thought it was when they come up uh, up on the camp and find mm-hmm. the the two people who were left there uh, dead. That's that's when it kind of you see the shift because they're like, "Oh, come back to the boat. It's not safe. You're a woman. You don't want to see that." Exactly, and I don't think it's Kay's character that changes too much there. I think it's the men treating Kay differently at that point, and maybe that kind of starts it. But at the same time, even after the camp, she is in there's a montage after that where they're trying to dig. It's like, oh, these guys have been killed. Oh, well, let's go back to digging. <laughs> and, and they have a montage there where they're digging and finding fossils and looking for fossils. And she's there with Whit Bissell, still working with them. And if I remember right, is part of the decision to go deeper into the into the lagoon to, to keep looking. And I, I really... In some sense, yes, she becomes a bathing beauty at the point she takes the swim, but the other people are doing stuff at that point. For me, it's only after that that, yes, the, it's the men change the way they're reacting to her. And because it's the 1950s, we don't get any pushback from her in, or, right. you know, in order to keep doing what she should be doing. Well, I think you, know, you mentioned the net shredding. I think that's the point at which she realized, oh, that was a stupid decision for me to go out swimming alone. <laughs> right. <laughs> and that I think maybe that takes her into a different mindset of maybe I am more vulnerable than I thought. Right. Yeah. Right. But- yeah. Because it follows immediately the swim where she's just having a wonderful time and, and clowning around. And, well, clowning is too strong a word, but she's you know doing the water ballet kind of things. And then suddenly it's like this peaceful moment followed by the, oh, my God, I was in real danger here. Mm-hmm. So It's hard to say on that because, I mean, honestly, yeah, if you're in the Amazon swimming alone, not a bright idea anyway. Yeah, True. no matter whether um, you're male or female. Yeah. yeah, it doesn't matter gender. <laughs> if you're alone and swimming in a wild river like that, that's just not good. Well, we've but, already seen crocodiles or alligators, yes. Mm-hmm. But um, but the men just went down and did this dive just before she does this. Together. Where they go down together. And they poke, but they poke around. And she asks them about it. Richard Carlson says, it's another world, you know. And, and kind of, we've heard that this is a paradise, right? So I don't think her decision to, as someone who's swum in strange places, 
I don't think it's entirely crazy for her to go swimming in this kind of idyllic situation, even if it's in the middle of the jungle in some sense. I mean, you know, I swam across the Thames River <laughs> and have swum in the De Leon Springs in, in, uh, in Florida with manatees nearby. Yes, there are crocodiles in, in some of those situations, but I don't, think it's, I don't think it's an entirely crazy thing to do. That's all I'm saying. Maybe not entirely crazy, but not exactly the safest thing in the world. No. <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, everything that you learn, you know, when you're learning to swim is have somebody around. Because, you know, you're in the water and you're not really equipped to, uh, you know, you've got the skills to stay afloat and to swim, but, you know, it's easy to get in trouble. Yeah, there's right. no lifeguard on duty in the Black Lagoon, so. Yeah. Now, <laughs> well, there is. He's swimming underneath you. <laughs> was there anybody else on deck when she jumped in the water? Because we saw uh, Whit Bissell's character and Mark and David and Dr. Maya all go below decks. But where was Lucas and where was his two crew? Well, Lucas was down below as well because he came up on deck and saw Kay out there. And that's what that's got right. everybody that's freaking right. out. So. I don't think there was anyone on deck. It, it didn't look it. Well, the, the other it's hard to know where the other two guys that are alive at that point in the movie, where they were. It seems reasonable that they were on deck. But as, as we're talking about this, it occurs to me that some of this is probably what people thought in the 1950s versus what people think now. Now, I happen to come from a family uh, good point. that had a house where my mom now lives, it was a family beach cottage at the time, where, as kids, we grew up on the ocean. Mm -hmm. And we went out all the time. Now people are like, oh my god, you were out in the ocean by yourself, swimming across a channel? Are you out of your mind? No. <laughs> I knew how to swim, I knew how, you know, and, and I didn't do the big channel that some of my, because I'm asthmatic, that my younger brothers did, but knew how to swim, knew how far the distance was, knew that the, the way the tides ran and that kind of stuff. And this is on Cape Cod, where just a little further down the Cape, there are sharks now. But at the time, you know, you didn't know what was in the water with you, but you knew there weren't people around being attacked, and it wasn't a big deal. You knew how to swim. You were good at it. So I think some of that is maybe our projecting danger onto something in the 1950s that maybe didn't seem as crazy as it does to, to modern-day people. Good you know? point. That's possible, yeah. yeah. Now, we've been talking about the swimming yeah. sequence. i got to ask one question, because I'm kind of curious. You think that's going to make it into the remake? I think it should, but I'm not sure how they're going to do it. I think it has to. Yeah. Um, and uh, assuming they do it. But that kind of does bring up the... My bigger trepidation about the remake is what they're going to do to the story. Whether we're going to get a faithful adaptation of this classic kind of Beauty and the Beast story, or whether we're going to get a Dracula Unleashed or whatever the, the last one was. Uh, <laughs> he's going to have a giant fist of fish. Right. At his right. Oh, God, no. <laughs> yeah, and what I want to know is once you have a giant fist, uh, fist of bats or fish that can destroy an entire army, 
what do you do for an encore? Who, who's your next challenge? <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. But, um, yeah. Well, the, the, the scary thing is they're going to tailor this in some way to make it fit into the big monster buildup they're working towards. Because we all know the basic goal of classic, you know, Universal Classic Monsters Unite is to have a big monster mashup. Right. It's so, basically to have the Avengers at the end of it. Yeah. So they're going to have, yeah. I imagine some of the monsters will be on the side of good, some will be on the side of bad, or they'll all come together to fight. Well, could be the one threat because we Dracula whatever i forgot the name of the movie <laughs> yeah, whatever the name of it was yeah um, you know you've got the the first vampire loose on the world so maybe they all come and fight him who knows but they're gonna have to tailor it so they can bring the gill man to wherever the action is right and that Which makes will hopefully me... be near water yes <laughs> well it makes me nervous it's the aquaman problem isn't it oh the villain's nowhere near <laughs> yes. the ocean we can't really fight him with aquaman yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it makes me really nervous that they're going to change the story significantly mm-hmm. in order to do that. They're going to tailor it so that whoever the female, whoever plays Kay, if, if her name is Kay in the new movie, generally wins the creature over somehow and it comes to her rescue when she needs him as long as she's by the water. You know, I just really am worried they're going to do that. And I can see something like that happening. I can see him still capturing her, mm-hmm. but then I can see her turning around and trying to make it into communicating with him. You know, the, if they bring the underwater, the grotto back, I can see her coming back to consciousness in the grotto and then trying to establish some sort of communication instead of just being scared out of her wits. Oh, yeah. And then it Which becomes if, something like um, the Andero and the Peter Jackson Kong. I was going to say that, yeah. You yeah. got Andero and Kong dancing and ice skating together. Right. Which yeah. I, I thought they did a, you know, I know a lot of people hate that film. And and King Kong is one of my favorite films of all time. It's like number two behind Casablanca. So I love the original King Kong. But I didn't hate that. And I actually thought Naomi Watts and the the CGI Kong, I thought they did a pretty good job of developing a relationship between those two characters, despite their differences. I think that could work. But <laughs> then it, it all depends on the, the fist of fish story. You know? Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, and, it, oh, and the threat can even be in the air because it's a fist of flying fish. <laughs> well, there you go. That's wow. right. <laughs> flying piranhas to oh. tear apart my enemies. Okay, okay now go. we're getting into shark NATO Tapori, really. <laughs> That's right. Mega Piranha, Sharknado, all those things. Well, so, why not? Dracula untold had Batnado, you know. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, and, but that, you know, I mean, we're kind of dancing around, what, and I've, I've talked about the story, but I, I think the, the basic problem a lot of us classic monster kids have with the premise is that you need to let the monsters be monsters. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I I personally don't need Dracula to be a hero. And I don't need the creature to be a hero or the Frankenstein monster or the wolfman. I want those guys to be monsters. I mean, that's the point of them, right? The point of them is that they're outcasts, that they're away from society. Some of them are actually evil. Dracula's an evil guy. Yeah. Right? He's supposed I mean, yes. to be. He's a villain. 
He yes. does very, very bad things. Right. <laughs> well, that gets us to, is the creature the villain in this story, in the original film? You know, it's it's a toss-up. I mean, yeah, he's a monster for us monster kids, but we went there. <laughs> he didn't come <laughs> after us. Yeah. You know, we started poking around where we shouldn't have been poking around and, and interrupted and intruded on his territory. We broke and entered, you know? <laughs> right. I would argue that the creature might be an anti-hero. Yeah. When mm-hmm. he's not a villain. Because the the villain of the piece is clearly Mark. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Who does Although not to, know when to stop. To be fair, why did the creature attack the two men in the tent? They oh, had not. Point. We had not gotten into the lagoon at that point. Yes. That's the, the strange thing that I don't think I've really seen addressed other places is that Clearly, the creature is not just in the lagoon. The creature has some kind of a, a territory that goes up to where its ancient burial grounds were or are or something like that. And is it at that point defending its territory? But they don't, you know, that's one of those, one of those things in the movies that they just, they never explain and they, they don't have to explain. It's like, well, why was the creature way the hell upstream where the bones were buried? Except now it's not. Now it's... Did it follow the boat all the way down to the Black Lagoon? I mean, we're given to understand that it lives there, but then why was it up there killing those guys to begin with? Well, I think that was all just uh, just to get the audience primed up that this is a dangerous thing. It, it right. serves no purpose in the story. It serves no purpose to the development of the Gilman as a character. It's just the script's way of saying, this thing's going to kill people, and just to make sure you know, here's a scene where it does. Right. Yeah. You know, it's 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 strictly an easy way for the for the screenwriters to up the threat level right, right. away. Yeah, and, which is it in some sense it as a story, it doesn't make any sense. As a movie, it's exactly what you need at exactly the right time. Mm-hmm. And I, I liked that you still haven't seen very much of the creature. Even that scene, I think all you ever see is an arm. Right. Yeah. yeah. You see him grab his face, and that's about it, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You see the arm come into the tent, another great 3D shot. And you oh, see yeah. the, the arm come from off camera onto the guy in camera, grab his face, and kind of toss him around and wreck the place. And a great decision on the part of the filmmakers and Jack Arnold sure. to not show. The monster until we actually see him underwater in his own environment to just get hints of what he looks like. And I was reminded the first time we see him in the lagoon, the way he pops up out of the rocks at the bottom reminded me like of a moray eel where they're hiding in their little hidey hole and something mm-hmm. comes by and they pop right out at yeah. it. Right. Right. Yeah. In some ways, he's a very timid creature and underwater and curious and again that doesn't if you think about it logically that doesn't play with him going up river and killing people for no particularly good reason but it certainly does make him more interesting and sympathetic when you see him kind of lurking down there on the bottom watching these people intrude on his domain and then becoming fascinated with uh, with Kay uh, as she swims around you know without all the bubbly apparatus that the other guys are using I never thought about that. Like you said, Kay was more like him, quote unquote, because she didn't have the apparatus. So he was maybe able to relate to her better. It's not just him somehow being attracted to this female. It's 
she doesn't have this thing on her face and this thing on her back. She's more like me. She's more like me. She's not carrying around these strange weapons or technologies or whatever other. I think in some sense the Gill Man can recognize her as a a fellow being, Mm -hmm. whereas the the guys fitted out in their aqualings. They're they're aliens. They're aliens, right, exactly. They're like Mm -hmm. spacemen coming down from a, a completely different world. So. That's a good point. Something I hadn't considered either, but that's a really good point. Yeah, and if, if you watch the film, I mean, if you put aside the initial attack on the camp, the creature really doesn't get violent until what Mark decides to go spear gunning for it. <laughs> you know, the, the creature isn't violent. It's just, you know, it's more curious about what the heck are these things? You know, but once once it gets attacked, every, it's on. You know, right. the creature's going to take it. Take these things out. Once Mark starts bringing a spear gun to the party, it changes the tone. Yeah, mm-hmm, yeah, yeah. yeah it's well, all and that's fun why and games. I said he's he's the real villain of the piece because yeah. he's the one that's that's in it for not for the science but for the profit, you know. And and in some sense, the other scientists are, are putting up with this guy because he's bankrolling them. In some sense, they need him to keep their work going. But mm-hmm. at the same time, he doesn't know when to stop. You know, he's the one that that brings the spear gun to the scientific expedition, right? <laughs> yeah, and, and if you notice in the film, you know, um, he's telling Lucas, "No, we're not going." Lucas pulls a knife on him, and did you notice how many people came jumping to Mark's defense at that moment? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's like Lucas, you're doing exactly what we all would like to do right now. <laughs> <laughs> we just can't do it because we're on the payroll. <laughs> <laughs> But it, you know, at the same time, it's not like he, Mark doesn't have any redeeming qualities. He has that kind of drive to push things forward, and he's also the one that's been funding this, and he's the one that put Kay in her position at the institute. And he clearly thinks she's a good scientist, and he trusts her. You know, he, in some ways, he trusts her way more than David does. He didn't fall in love with her, right? Well. And hire her because. <laughs> He may be in love with her, but she's working for him, and they're not in a relationship. Right. And he trusts her as a scientist. There's a moment, especially early in the film, where it's like it's clear he will defer to her more than he will to David. And some of that is probably, you know, macho head-to-head stuff. But some of it's the fact that I think he actually (laughs) respects her as a scientist in her job. Yeah. Yeah. There is one interesting thing, and I mean, I know, you know, I agree with everything that's being said about Kay's character. She's smart. She's capable. Watching the movie last night, you're never really given a sense as to what she really does for Mark. You know, we're not told that she's a scientist. First scene we see, she's driving a shuttle boat. You know, we know she works for Mark, but we don't know what she does. Yeah. You right. know, it. You know, and I'm not saying... But, but all the scientists at the in- Institute have these nebulous jobs. I actually think that's kind of good, because if you go back to this era, in, or any previous era, where they were, like, really trying to show that they knew something about science, it's almost always completely wrong, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's all just rubber science, and when you look back, you're like... Well, that's a really bogus description of what they're doing. Here, they're not really specific about what she does versus what Whit Bissell does mm-hmm. or even what Richard Carlson, David Reed does. But by doing that, 
I think they avoided a lot of the pitfalls of the rubber science 1950s science fiction movies. Of being over-specific, right. Right, exactly. Yeah. Just, just specific enough. And, and then, of course, we get the Jack Arnold science lesson in the middle of the movie with the, the long fish. But, you know, right. <laughs> that's about as sciencey as we really get. I actually like the fact that she was driving the boat. <laughs> yeah, I noticed that, oh, yeah. too. It's like, oh. She's driving the boat. No and one, again, no nobody one, blinked at that. No one, exactly. I thought that was awesome. Yeah, she's just part of the team up up until about halfway through the film, and she kind of right. falls into that stereotypical role. And I just I don't see Scarlett Johansson doing that. I don't see no. that happening in a modern movie now, anyway. No. Well, uh, one that hopes way, not. one hopes not. Yeah. <laughs> it it can still happen. There are plenty of plenty of movies nowadays where a female character will lose agency. Oh, sure. Partway, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and that's that's a broad Hollywood problem. That's not just a problem right. with remakes or anything else. I mean, that's right. And it's a Hollywood broad problem, but... Oh! oh. oh, no. oh. <laughs> <laughs> or wait. da <laughs> What I'm curious about, though, to go back to Scarlett Johansson, and, and part of the reason why I was excited to have Tracy on this roundtable, Tracy co-hosts Disney Indiana, and Disney owns the Marvel franchise. Would Disney or Marvel let Scarlett Johansson go be part of another franchise like that? I yes. wouldn't think it would be a problem as long as she's not playing Black Widow, quote unquote. I mean, she's, <laughs> she was in Lucy. She's been in other. She was in Under the Skin recently. Well, I mean, you know, they'd let her do other films. Very unmarvel like things. But, but this, is a, this is another potential franchise, which could potentially be a competitor. Is that Jeremy Renner's in Avengers and Mission Impossible? Yeah, and he was in a, a born. born. Yeah. Right. Huh. Yeah, okay. it as I think as long as she fulfills her contract with Marvel, there wouldn't be a problem. It's just, you know, she's she's got another job now. Mm-hmm. Um, the conflict could become if she's filming that one and not filming a Marvel one that she's supposed to. Well, that would be right. the only time I could see there being a problem with the studios. And if that's the studios would have to figure that out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it, it's it's not the studio system anymore where you know you have your regular stable of actors that are going to work for you and just you and then you're going to maybe loan them out if the head of MGM can convince you to do so. Actors are free agents and she's more than free to be the the lead character in as many franchises as she likes. I certainly think that they were hoping, I don't think that it's going to work out this way, that Lucy might be a franchise. Certainly seemed set up for potential franchise yeah. to me. And now, like Tracy, I didn't think that was a very good movie. <laughs> Apparently a lot of people didn't, because did, I don't think it's franchising itself. No, I like the concepts of Lucy, but I thought there was a lot that was missing. Right. Um, Maybe Universal will give her a, a solo film since they won't give the Black Widow a solo film. Maybe we'll have the K. Lawrence story. I'd watch that. Yeah, there we okay. go. <laughs> that does bring up an interesting point, though, is if they do remake it and if they are using the original as a basis, unlike, say, with Dracula, would they make? Would she be the main character or would she be part of a, a love triangle again? You know, or a professional triangle. Would the, you know, is she the star or is she the co-star with whoever else, Jeremy Renner and uh, George Clooney or whoever they think might play, play the other two guys? You know? I, I, yeah, I don't think there's going to be a love triangle. 
between two guys and her that the creature suddenly becomes, you know, it becomes a love tripod. Um, <laughs> Quadrangle. Yeah, yeah. Because I think what will probably happen is we'll still have the Mark-style character. Right. And the conflict will be between the two of them. Mm-hmm. And then the creature gets in the middle. And I think she will be the star. I don't think they will, you know, I don't think they're going to hire somebody to pull the rug out from under her at that point. She will be the star. Right. So you see it more like the recent Thing prequel. Did you guys see that? It was really the Thing that was, Mm -hmm. I don't remember who the female lead was. It was basically a prequel to the Kurt Russell film. Yes. And I thought very well done. And the main character was the female character. Rather than having it be, you know, a Kurt Russell-like character. Yeah, and I, I agree with you. That's how it's going to be, I think. I think yeah. they're going to write it so that there's a conflict between a Mark-style scientist who may be the one in charge, but it's going to be Scarlett Johansson's movie along with the creature. It's just the conflict will be there, the creature will get in the middle, and then we see how things work out. Now, when we first learned about the possibility of Johansson being cast, Scott said, my husband said he would like to see her be one of the other scientists on the team. Mm. You know, to mm. put her in the Mark or David or Whit Bissell role. Huh. Oh, okay. That's, that's interesting. Be, I mean, yeah. you know, two out of the three of us said we thought it was a bad idea to remake it. But if you did remake it, would you remake it basically on the same storyline or do you think you'd do what they did with Dracula Untold and just completely throw the original out the window? Go off and script just completely. Keep the characters? Well, yeah. it's, it's interesting, though, too, because when you look at the Dracula and when they do finally get to the Frankenstein, Dracula and Frankenstein, and even, I guess, the Wolfman or the Werewolf story has a lot of pop culture out there around it. I mean, there's more than just the Universal stuff. Creature from a Black Lagoon is strictly a Universal property. There were three movies, a couple of guest appearances on the Munsters, and that's it. Mm-hmm. You know, so... You know, they have maybe and more the toys, room to put. And the, well, the toys. the toys and everything else. But in terms of actually screen material to pull from and quote-unquote remake, they don't right. have nearly as much to pull from. When it comes to Dracula, everybody knows the Vlad connection to Dracula. So sure, let's play with that for Dracula Untold. And who knows what they'll do with Frankenstein. But with Creature, it's it's so specific. The source material is so lacking, I guess, when you look at it compared to, say, the Dracula monster and modern mythology or pop culture i don't know maybe we'll get a k lawrence and name only that's what i'm thinking you know and mm-hmm. you know see scarlett johansson as a scientist in one of the other lead scientist roles why not i mean i don't necessarily want to see a remake of the film i'm not a big fan of what they did with dracula untold and i'm hesitant to see what they're going to do with the rest but if they have to remake it not that anybody has to but if they have to remake <laughs> it if they have to remake it i'd like to see them stick to the story as it was originally done. Maybe I'm just mad for even thinking that's a possibility. Right. But I'd like to see basically a modern updating of the way the film was done. In some ways, like The Thing, which again wasn't wasn't actually a remake, uh, the most recent one. It was a prequel. But I'd, I'd like to see a more fidelity to the actual original creature story and not this kind of attempt to screw it up by modernizing it or I, I'm not sure exactly I don't want to see it become a superhero movie for right. sure I don't want it to, I, I don't want that. the creature to be Aquaman and, and have the fist, <laughs> the fist of fish 
<laughs> Could they modernize the story, though? I mean, part of the reason why the original story works, I feel like, is because it gets so isolated. Is it realistic right. to think that a group of scientists could get that isolated in today's world without mm. getting contacted by radio, phone, cell, satellite, whatever? Good point. Yeah. Right. They keep making Jurassic Park movies despite advanced technology. All you have to do is separate the people from the technology. But I was actually one of the things I hated most <laughs> about the Dracula Untold movie, which was okay as a movie, just not yeah. as a universal monster movie was that at the end they did bring it right up to the modern era. And I thought, well, why are you doing that? <laughs> that's yeah. not that's not universal horror. Universal horror is set in this kind of nebulous 1930s to 40s, in-between-the-war Europe kind of place. That's where it's really frightening. If you well, bring it up to the modern era, then suddenly we're competing with Jason and Freddy and all these less frightening slasher people, at least it's in my opinion. Well, they're, they're modernizing everything because from what I've read online, and like I said, if it's on the internet, got to be true. But, <laughs> the, but apparently they're modernizing The Mummy, the, the next film in their Universal Monsters Unite series. They're modernizing it. They're bringing The Mummy to modern time. Okay. Which... You know, once again, I mean, it just doesn't make sense. But you know, I mean, you can, uh, you can do it. But I have not seen, from what they've demonstrated so far, the evidence that they are willing to think it through far enough to do it well. Yeah, you know, I, I just got done watching um, the first season of Penny Dreadful, the Showtime uh, mm-hmm. television show. Right. I just, I just have seen the first episode. That's on my binge watch list this week. Yeah, it's but, on our list too. I watched it and I'm like, this is how they should be doing the Universal Monsters. Even watching the first episode, which is all I've seen so far, I thought that too. I thought yeah. exactly that. They could do separate films, and and you know this this was just something I was thinking about. Um, I forget the name of the ship that Dracula comes across the sea in the Dimitri. Maybe. I, I yeah. don't remember. Well, you know, you know, you know the ship. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But anyway, you know, if if you wanted to do separate movies, you could set up scenes where the character, where certain characters like interact. You can have, let's say, a scene in Frankenstein where they're standing in front of the ship and you happen to notice this one character on the ship. In the Dracula version, you're on the ship. You see the character you saw in the background of the Frankenstein movie is Von Helsing. And you can see the characters from Frankenstein in the background, you know, you set up the shot so you can use them in both movies and Mm -hmm. tie it in that way and then bring it to a conclusion. Yes. But that would, I think require more thought and fore planning than they seem willing to do. One of the things we saw the Avengers last night, one of the things that my wife and I came out admiring about the, the Avengers and this whole Marvel series of movies is the master plan. The fact that these guys sat down and in advance figured out what they were going to do for years. Mm-hmm. You know, up until like 21, 2021 or something like that. It's like five years from now, they have a plan for what they're doing. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't see any evidence of Universal having done that. The only way that this kind of thing can work really well is if you have a whole bunch of people aboard 
at the same time that say, this is what we're doing, this is what we're shooting for. You need a brain trust. Right, exactly. Yeah. Is there one for Universal? I don't think. You know, the thing is, I've I've heard people connected with it, and one of them basically is the guy behind the Fast and Furious franchise. You know, seven movies, that's nothing to sneeze at. Yeah, but... But it's it, not the monsters. It's, well, <laughs> it's it's not the monsters, and it's also not uniting a bunch of characters from different films together. True, right? right. Well, I don't know. I haven't seen I haven't seen too many of the movies in the franchise, but he made a great franchise with a whole bunch of car stunts. Wonderful, <laughs> right? And some Can he do monsters? Kind of, who knows? I don't know. I wish we knew. I we should probably say that. All of us are definitely available for hire for the Universal Brain Trust. If you want to do that, we're easily contactable here on the Rondo Award-winning Monster Kid Radio. (laughs) And, hey, I don't know about the rest of you, but to work on a Universal Monster Brain Trust, I'm cheap. <laughs> I'm probably not as cheap as he is, but I, I'm not too terribly expensive. <laughs> so there's one thing that we haven't talked about regarding a potential remake, and I think again, I know the answer. Uh oh, you're going, we go. there, aren't you? Suit versus CG. <laughs> suit. It's got to be a suit, but it won't be. <laughs> what are your guys' thoughts on motion capture? Is that a compromise between pure CG and suit? I I assume they would mocap it. I think they would. And I've <laughs> I think I've gone on record online <laughs> in uh, the MKR Facebook page at least as saying I am totally aboard with motion capture if they get Rico Browning to play the creature again. (laughs) (laughs) Barring that, I want to see a suit, and I want to see it look like the original suit. And I want to, if they must, they can maybe do a little computer enhancement Mm -hmm. on the suit to make it look more real. But on that on that front, it's a funny thing. Just by coincidence this week, we were given some free previews or free uh, months of a number of the movie channels. And two of the movie channels just happened to be playing simultaneously earlier this week the remake of King Kong and the remake of Mighty Joe Young. And I enjoyed both those films. Okay, not as much as the originals, but I've enjoyed them both. So I decided, oh, which one can I watch? And then I thought, oh, I have picture in picture. So I put the picture in picture up, and I was watching both of them at the same time. And the funny thing was that doing it that way, I realized that while King Kong looks realistic within his own setting, when you compared him to the mighty Joe Young, which was a combination of CGI and a really excellent ape suit by Rick Baker. The Rick Baker suit looked so much more real than even the, you know, the kind of brilliant cutting edge CGI that Weta was doing on, on Kong. And I was struck by that and, and relating that to this, even though they say you can do anything CGI, that doesn't mean you should. And I, I think having at least most of the creature be practical effects, be a real suit, be the, the Millicent Patrick 
design, I think, would work better for them in the long run and in the short term than having someone play to an actor in a, in a green suit with ping pong balls scattered about it. Promotion you, capture. You mentioned an interesting point. You know, you can do, where you said you can do anything, but you maybe shouldn't, and that's one of the problems I have with any sort of CGI. They can take things and just make them so extreme that it just uh, it jars you out of reality. I mean, right. I know there's a lot of CGI in the Avengers, and uh, I'm looking forward to seeing Age of Ultron, but that's a superhero. They're supposed to be able to do that stuff. Mm-hmm. If you're talking humans interacting with the Gill Man, there are certain things that shouldn't be happening, and yet they will because they have the capabilities with CGI. And that bothers me more than anything else. You know, whether it's motion capture or not, they can still make things happen that break the reality of that particular character and movie. One of the charms of the original creature is the fact that there is, even though for all the world as a kid, I couldn't figure out how they did the creature because he doesn't have an oxygen tent. He's swimming around under the water for ungodly amounts of time, and it looks like a monster there. You know, I didn't know about air tubes or the fact that Rico Browning could hold his breath for like five minutes or whatever it was. Didn't know any of that. To me, it was a fully aquatic creature interacting with another person, and they were right there in the frame with each other and affecting each other. And if you replace that with a a CGI, even a motion capture, even, you know, Andy Serkis level acting and Rico Browning actually doing the swimming, it's just not going to be the same as Julie Adams or her stunt double swimming and interacting with Rico Browning or Ben Chapman. It's just not you lose something. You lose the t- the sense of the tactile sense, yeah. and that's what I was seeing when I saw the fully CGI Kong versus the sometimes CGI Mighty Joe Young. The Mighty Joe Young that was not CGI looked like a real creature in the in the frame, whereas the Kong was Naomi Watts and everything around her done by a really really good painter. Yeah, there's a, a sense of danger that you get with a real creature. Uh, I haven't seen the Avengers movies, so I don't know uh, you know the extent of the CGI there, but if you look at the last Indiana Jones movie, so much of that is CGI. Mm-hmm. And granted, that movie's got a lot of problems. It, it's Celeste of the Four, but one of the, re- one of the biggest issues I have with that is that I never felt like Indiana Jones and company were in danger of anything because it was all CG. I knew if somebody just turned off the computer, he'd be just fine. Whereas in the previous films, you know, there are real interactions and set pieces and stunt work happening here. And I mean, there was a real boulder chasing them in Raiders. You know, these were just CG ants and, you know, Crystal Skull. And I I didn't feel threatened by any of that. I I think the CGI was... I agree that it's the least of the four films, but I think the CGI is the major problem with it. Yes. Because if you remember, and you guys are younger than me, uh, at least I think you are, um, in the, when the first Raiders came out, <laughs> Spielberg's idea of what he was, and Lucas's idea was they were going to shoot this the same way they did the original 1940s cliffhanger serials. Right. So it was all practical effects. It was all stunt work. It was all... And they carried 
a lot of that through right up to the third film and then in the in the the crystal skull film it was just like they'd completely forgotten that their mm-hmm. mission was to recreate the original pre-CGI excitement and they went with like well we can do anything so let's have millions of ants and let's have a a thing where they're racing through the forest on two different trucks and rather than set that up practically we're going to CGI the entire forest and just move the trucks on gimbals and then let's you know and if we make it blurry enough, they won't be able to tell the difference. Right. Right. <laughs> and that that's that's another issue I'm gonna have with the with the remake. Where are they gonna film the underwater scenes? There aren't that many places anymore that are that are that are clear enough for something like that. And I'm worried they're just gonna get a, a green screen tank and have the actors swim around and paint everything around them. Or I, they could I even... think Silver Springs is still in existence. I think she's right. Well, I think, I, I think I, the original places they shot the underwater sequences have been maintained as tourist attractions and still exist in more or less that state. That may be. I, but but I, I, I agree with you that their tendency is going to be to either green screen it or even worse, shoot it dry for wet with green screen. Oh, yeah. Oh, man. That would be great. <laughs> mm. um, no, I've seen happen. No, I realize there are places still like in Florida. Like when I went uh, to Florida last year, we went to the Wiki Walking Springs Mermaid Show. There you go. And they had a little bit of information on it. And apparently the springs were pretty bad off. It took a lot of work and taking the springs and having the springs taken over by the state park to get them back into a pristine condition. Right. So, you know, I, I kind of worry, you know, maybe the spring is still there, but is it shootable? And then, of course, there is the issue, would they even bother? Would it be just easier to do it in a swimming pool or, or put the actors on wires and pretend to be swimming? Right. And That's depressing. <laughs> it is. It is. Seeing the dry for wet scenes in a couple of recent movies it's just like oh my god really you couldn't afford an underwater camera in a, a pool at the high school <laughs> you know, it, for me the only time I think wet for dry really worked well was in the the 1920s version of Arabian Nights of Thief of Baghdad in which Douglas Fairbanks Sr. was swimming around on wires with all these other sea creatures on wires and you knew that's what's going on because they've got these elaborate monster puppets and stuff. But it really fit the fantasy really well. Otherwise, dry for wet, it's just not happening, man. <laughs> if you go on YouTube, I think it's still on YouTube, you can find some of that rock and roll creature show that Universal was running at one point. Mm-hmm. It's part of their, well, just one of the, the live attractions. And there are scenes in which characters are on wires swimming through the air. And it just looks silly. <laughs> that's a stage show too though yeah, yeah that's true you, know, think, you gotta give, give him some slack for a stage show <laughs> yeah I think the only time I really appreciated actors swimming on wires was in Fantastic Voyage oh there you go too there's another good one yep. you know that, that one really worked but that was because it was you know I mean they were inside a human body and it was such an unreal experience that you know <laughs> the fact that they were swimming on wires just kind of was glossed over by the surrounding. Yeah, you had no expectations of what it should look like. Mm-hmm. Right. We all know what people look like swimming in water, so hanging them on wires and trying to pretend isn't going to cut it. Right. Well, about the best it gets is, again, 
Peter Jackson's King Kong. They did a set of scenes that were done that way, and they worked really hard on it, and it almost looked like it might possibly be real if you didn't know what it really looked like to swim underwater. <laughs> I hope not, but I'm afraid, you know, kind of going back to the suit or CG, I'm afraid the best that we can hope for is a CG-enhanced suit, though as far as I'm concerned, there is no reason, aside from the fact that Ben Chapman is like 90 years old, or uh, sorry, Rico Browning's like 90 years old, there's no reason you couldn't do it exactly the same way that they did it the first time, but with, you know, a few more modern enhancements. So maybe the gills actually move on all the shots rather than just when the creature's above the water mm-hmm. and stuff. That would be cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We have people like Doug Jones who are, you know, accomplished suit actors these days. Oh, he's so, awesome. I mean, there are people who can do this in a suit, in makeup, and make it work. So, hey, Doug, do you swim? <laughs> well, <laughs> how, how long can you hold your breath, Doug? <laughs> well, the nice thing about the enhancements is they can rig the suit if they use the CGI properly with a tank and yeah. then just erase or with it an later. Air hose. Yeah. yeah, or with an air hose mm-hmm. and erase it later, which I, you know, would be, I think it'd be great. Yeah, that's a good use of technology. Mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah. So, but boy, <laughs> I'm worried about it. I know, I, I think probably all of you are, too. I, yeah. I think if we get a suit, we're going to get a suit for the dry scenes where the creature's on the boat interacting, but I'm really worried that once they hit the water, it's going to be CGI all the way. And the transition will be very obvious. You won't, right. you won't feel like it's the same thing the way you do with... Uh, the Ben Chapman, Rico Browning oh, no. transition. And he'll be moving faster than a human being can move underwater in yeah. order to make that point. It's like when I was watching the water ballet last night, you never think that the creature should be moving faster or more powerfully than he is because it's someone really there doing the thing. You never think, oh, he should be a faster swimmer underwater than she is on top of the water and maybe he is because clearly rico browning's a hell of a swimmer but it's but i'm sure once you get the cgi involved they're going to start thinking we need the creature to be bigger stronger faster we're going to have the claw come in with a motion blur and take people out so fast you can hardly see it it's going to be like the sharks in deep blue sea yeah oh god like they're not fast enough Speed him up. And and the creature's not going to climb on the boat, you know. He's going to launch from the uh, water onto the boat. Oh, right. no. Yeah. <laughs> Don't yeah. give him ideas. Yeah, well, stop it. There are a lot of bad choices they can make here. Yeah. Now, what I'm hoping is I'm not giving them ideas. They already had these ideas, and now they're freaking out that someone leaked them and are going to change them. Oh, there we go. There we go. <laughs> Oh man, we were going to do CGI, but then we heard on the show that they were going to do CGI, so maybe we better do the suit after all. <laughs> well, what if Scarlett Johansson plays the creature? How about that? Let's let's go for that. I'm for. Oh, we do a gender swap. I'm all Why for not? that. Why oh, not? that could be interesting. You know, there was talk of a, a she creature in the original when they were doing the original film. There were plans that they thought that maybe that you know there would be a kind of a family unit of monsters at one point, and they. I think they'd even designed some roughs for it before they tossed that idea overboard. Why right. they put a baby creature in this new film? Oh god! Oh. <laughs> even if it's dancing in a flower pot, 
<laughs> Let, let's not do that. Let's not have a family of creatures. <laughs> and let's not uh, do the the fly version with Scarlett Johansson becoming the creature. Oh, let's, no. let's not do any of that. Let's stick to the actual original story about a misfit in a lost lagoon out of time falling in love with with a woman that's swimming around without scuba gear on. That's now, what I want. Now that brings up an interesting point. The swimming sequence, once again, we're coming back to that, but that's so iconic. What, I mean, if, if they update, if Scarlett Johansson is Kay and they update her character and make her competent and make her a scientist on equal footing with everybody, what is she going to wear during that <laughs> swimming sequence. I mean, whatever she a wants. Skin tight wetsuit. I would like to hope that I would hope they would do that, but I'm not thinking. Well, you'd you'd have to have a reason to be in a skin tight wetsuit. <laughs> I'm yeah. thinking. I'm thinking it'll be what it'll be. Yeah. You know, I'm not going to argue with whatever Scarlett Johansson wants to wear. If it's a skin tight a wetsuit or if it's a bikini or if it's nothing i'm fine with it <laughs> or if it's nothing <laughs> wow who brings wow. A, who brings that, a swimsuit to the amazon man <laughs> that's gonna stretch the pg-13 rating i figure they're aiming at boy <laughs> yeah i don't know walkabout was pg-13 i think right back in the 70s you could actually get away with more nudity in pg films than you can now hey beastmaster's got a topless woman and it's pg so yeah so in the 80s you could go topless with pg yeah although i don't imagine they'd go topless with scarlett johansson i mean she's done nudity but um i don't i don't imagine that's what they would want to do for this franchise no i'm not suggesting it i was no i know whatever she wants to wear is fine with me yeah no i mean it's scarlett johansson she's going to have certain conditions too i mean i'm sure they could write all the nude scenes they want and she could veto every one of them. So, right mm-hmm. or whoever they bring in. I mean, back in 2007, there were you know, rumors about Jennifer Connelly taking the role. So, I mean, whoever they bring in. Um, now, would you want it to be a PG-13, or would you prefer an R, or would you prefer something else? You know, I feel like the original film it's PG-ish. Yeah. I mean, yes, you know, it's it's pretty innocent. I'm mm-hmm. I'm actually and I'm okay with that. I'm actually sick to death of PG-13. <laughs> Okay. I'm tired of it because I feel like shooting for that rating means you have to dumb it down from an R or ramp it up from a PG. And as a result, we get this frenetic mishmash of action scenes that seem to dominate every freaking movie that we have coming out today. And or I they throw in language to bump it up. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Oh, there's a funny language joke in, in Avengers, by the way. Yes. <laughs> But I would much rather that they let the film be what it is, Mm -hmm. whether it's R or PG, and not shoot for that level of maybe too intense for younger viewers, PG-13, which honestly, I think in some ways PG-13 has destroyed a lot of the film industry by making everything now has to be PG-13, it seems like. Right, because if it's PG, the teens won't go see it. Right. And right. if it's R, families won't bring their kids to see it. Right. You, I have problems with PG-13 as well. Because if you look at the Avengers, I mean, 20 years ago, that would be a PG movie. Yep. There's nothing terribly offensive. The violence isn't that bad. You know, I mean, it's against robots in this one, you know. Um, right. 
but then they take a film like Expendables 3 and turn it into a PG-13 movie when it's obviously an R and they just remove digital blood to make it clean. It just, yeah. I, I don't yeah. think, yeah. Exactly. I don't think the creature needs to be R. I don't think it needs that sort of violence no. to work. But, I, you know, I could see it easily being PG, but it wouldn't be marketable at that point. It's got to be no. a PG-13 because that's what everybody does. And if they are going to do the PG-13, I'd rather it be because of a language thing that they have the scientists maybe swear a little bit more than normal versus having the creature go on a killing spree. I can just imagine Julie Adams swearing up a storm. <laughs> oh, that would be awesome. <laughs> I hope maybe, there's an outtake somewhere. <laughs> maybe if we get to meet her again, we can ask her. <laughs> well, like She's such mean? a sweet lady. Oh, God, yes, yes, she is. <laughs> We've been going for a little bit longer than we originally planned. So in closing, if we can start wrapping up any other concerns, light concerns about upcoming remakes, what you want to see or story, story, story. I want to see a good story. If you're going to remake this, I'd like to see you adhere to the original storyline and just you're going to modernize it. So modernize it, but don't fill it with CGI crap. Don't fill it with non human stunts just make a good story because as a writer that's what i complain about most it's like why did you spend 120 million dollars on this without fixing the story problems so take some time hire me hire kevin van hook or one of my other friends write a <laughs> damn story then film it that's Amen. my advice mm-hmm. yeah. be gone brother steve <laughs> You summed it up perfectly, you know, and and uh, just you know, I don't want to see the fist of fish. Just, just, just keep the characters the same, update it, but we don't need that. We don't need I have that. To, I have to say that that is when Dracula Untold got super CGI and went with the fist of bats. That's when that movie lost me. Yeah, it had me. I was okay with it up until then, and then it was like, oh. Fist of Fish sounds like a special at Long John Silver's on Thursday night. I don't think it sounds, you know. <laughs> Actually, it sounds like a Shaw Brothers movie. <laughs> oh, even better. Ooh, now that would be a good one. <laughs> I'd watch that. <laughs> Only if it stars Lou Zealand and his boomerang fish. Oh, there we go. <laughs> and on that Disney note. <laughs> So, I want to thank everybody for being part of the roundtable. I think this was a lot of fun. I hope the listeners dug it as much as I enjoyed doing it with you guys and gal. And we'll have to have you all back on the show later this year for who knows what other kind of fun we can get into. Uh, I appreciate you taking the time, and I know we ran a little long. I, I, I think the listeners appreciate it, and I know I appreciate it, so thank you. It was my pleasure. I love talking with everybody, especially about the creature. It's been a great time. Thanks for having me on. I really, really had a good time. This has been a lot of fun, Derek. I appreciate being invited back and looking forward to covering more monster films on MKR. It's been a blast, and I'm just really happy to to talk with Chris and Tracy, who I've never spoken with before. It was great sharing these creature memories. We could probably do another an hour and a half easily. Oh, I'm sure we could. No problem. And uh, we'll maybe give it a break and let someone else talk about it for a while. We'll save it for episode 400. 
Oh, there, okay. you, there we go. Okay. <laughs> Write in with your comments. Leave messages for Derek and that kind of stuff on the Rondo Award-winning oh. <laughs> Monster Kid Radio podcast. Okay, a roll call of the websites that you can find the roundtable participants at when you're not hearing them on Monster Kid Radio. Tracy Morris is one of the co-hosts of Disney Indiana. They're getting close to 200 episodes themselves. It's a long-time, long-running podcast that just keeps getting better and better. I've been honored to be on that show repeatedly in the past. I look forward to the next time I get invited to put on the Mickey Mouse hat and chat with Scott and Tracy. You can find them over at DisneyIndiana.com. Chris McMillan is at shadowoverportland.blogspot.com. This is the website that you're going to want to pay attention to if you live anywhere in the Pacific Northwest, not just here in Oregon, because he covers horror happenings in Oregon, in Washington, anything in this area. He tries to mention it on his website, and he posts frequently. So if you have a blog reader that you use, I highly recommend you put shadowoverportland.blogspot.com on your subscription list. And finally, Stephen D. Sullivan. You can find him at a couple of different places, S.D. Sullivan, or type it all out, Stephen, that's Stephen with a P-H, dsullivan.com, where he maintains a bibliography of every one of his books that he's released. And I mean it. I wasn't just being nice to him because he was on the show. I really enjoyed White Zombie and Daikaiju Attack. I think Monster Kid's if you don't already have it, I think you'd enjoy it as well. All of his books are there, his fantasy work. He also keeps people up to date with what's going on with his publishing and his career. So check him out at stephendsullivan.com. Of course, there are links to all three of these websites in the links section of our website at monsterkidradio.net. Let's talk about the website real quick. I'm going to try to do this brief because this episode has run so gloriously long. Oh, it was so good. though. It was like a really satisfying meal. It's like the Thanksgiving Day meal in May for your ears. So you're not anyway, monsterkidradio.net is where you're going to find everything you need to know about monster kid radio between episodes. There are links to our Facebook group, which you can go join and get involved with conversations with other monster kid radio listeners between episodes. We have a link to our live 365 internet radio station where you can listen to music and trailers from classic monster movies. I try to update this once a month with new tracks. I already have a couple of tracks set aside for the May 2015 update and if you subscribe to the Monster Alley Checkpoint monthly e-newsletter, you'll actually see what the new additions to the radio station will be. You can join that monthly e-newsletter by putting your email address into the website. Again, monsterkidradio.net over on the right. Type in your email address, hit subscribe, and you're in. You also automatically become a subscriber of the Monster Alley Checkpoint if you become a patron of Monster Kid Radio. We have a Patreon page. It's patreon.com slash monsterkidradio, or again, follow the link from our website. If you are a patron of Monster Kid Radio, you get the Checkpoint newsletter. You might also get some other awesome rewards, special thanks, shout-outs, and depending on what level, you can get the checkpoint early, or even if you participate in the higher levels, you can get a Monster Kid Radio care package delivered after so many months of supporting Monster Kid Radio. And since we're talking about the Patreon page, just want to throw out there, we are going to be adding sometime during the day, we're going to go ahead and put in the $100 milestone. The $100 milestone will be a monthly release called How to Make a Monster Kid Radio. This special podcast will be available on the feed as well as the Patreon page. 
and our website. And it will basically be a behind the scenes look at what I go through on a monthly basis to put the show together. So you may get bloopers, you may get some outtakes, you may get some blog like journaling from me, except in audio form. Basically, I'm going to take you behind the curtain here at Monster Kid Radio with how to make a Monster Kid Radio. So if we hit that $100 milestone, that's going to be coming. And huge thanks to everybody who's already gotten us past the first two milestones. Of course, our contact information is available on our website. Our email address is monsterkidradio at gmail.com. And our voicemail line is 503-479-5657. It's 503-4795-MKR. And you know how I know that voicemail line works? We got this message. Hi, Derek. This is Jeff Blair. Calling to congratulate you and Monster Kid Radio on 200 episodes. Way to go, sir. I'll see you around town and especially at the Joy Cinema for the occasional Weird Wednesday. Have a great day. Here's to 200 more. Thank you. And yeah, you'll see me at an upcoming Weird Wednesday here at the Joy. I've been talking with Jeff Punkrock Martin at the Joy Cinema about some more movies for me to come in and introduce some movies from the Dorado Films catalog. I'm excited about bringing in maybe a Paul Nashy film or two. Have a couple of things on deck. Not the werewolf movies, but some other really good, creepy and just Paul Nashy likes that. Anyway, it'll be fun. And if that happens, well, we'll turn it into a Monster Kid radio crash, where we all just kind of meet up at the theater and have a good time together watching a monster movie. I've had a great time putting this show together. Again, big thanks to Tracy, Chris, and Steve. Big thanks to you, listeners, for making Monster Kid Radio such a fulfilling project for me. I absolutely love this sub. Is it fair to call it a subgenre? Whatever it is, I love this subgenre, the classic monster movie stuff. I really feel like that I am home. The Monster Kids, you're my tribe. I am looking forward to producing another 100, 200 episodes of Monster Kid Radio, getting other projects off the ground as well, and just creating even more Monster Kid friendly content. I've got a lot of plans for the rest of the year. I have some new people that I'm looking at to have on the show for the first time, as well as some old friends and old favorites, some interesting topics that I'm going to be tackling with some of these people, some new movies, at least new movies to me to watch. And one of these days, I'm going to get Christopher Armin back on the show to have our John Agar Smackdown. Now that he's done with production on his latest movie, maybe he'll have some time. We'll, we'll see. I'll probably get back to him after the premiere of Danny Johnson Saves the World. And of course, thanks to Shelby Denham for creating the awesome cover art for this episode and the band Invisible Dracula. I want to get this out onto the feed and into your iPod or MP3 player again Thank you. From the bottom of my Monster Kid heart, I've enjoyed this ride. I hope you've dug it a little bit as well. Onward to episode 201 and 202 next week with Dr. Gang Green. Larry Underwood's coming back, and we're going to talk about the Vincent Price film, The Mad Magician. Until then, remember that Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio, LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio, LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0 unported license. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song that is making its internet debut with this episode. I'm talking about the song Black Lagoon from the band Invisible Dracula. Hit them up at invisibledracula.bandcamp.com to buy their other music and enjoy this one as we go out thank you again for listening